Hi everybody, welcome to the Colour Not On Tour podcast. My name is Warren Eagles, I'm based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm going to be talking to colourists around the world about what it's like to colour correct and live in their town. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible colour. Hi, folks. Welcome to Colour Tour Podcast. It's season three, episode three. And I'm really pleased to be talking to Juan Cabrera from Santa Monica. He is our first Santa Monica person. Obviously, we're not there in, per- in person, but he runs a great shop called Lightbender there. He's worked on big shows, little shows. He's got his own company. How are you, Juan? I'm great. I'm very happy to hear here with you. Yeah, right. Let's cut to the chase. The HPA Awards, you are up for an award, which is the biggest colorist award, I'm going to say, in the world. Load of top shows. You're in it for a show called The Alienist. I've only seen the trailer. It's on TNT, Paramount Channel. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about it. Good luck with the awards anyway. But tell me, how do you you get nominated? And how do you... How does it how does it all happen? And what is HBA for the rest of us around the world that don't really know about it? Well, we're very, very excited about it because as you said, I mean it's probably like the most recognizable like uh ceremony that awards post-production. Uh they have uh, awards for also audio editing and stuff like that. I mean you have editing in the Oscars and other another big, big, big festivals, but not really you know, for post-production, like a specific on the color side. HPA is the Hollywood Post Alliance. Uh, um, and uh, they have technical retreats. They have, it's a community of post-production houses and post-production professionals um, to just trying to uh, make things a little bit better for everybody. And uh, like from, from having seminars and um, share information, have professional advice, like uh, they have like a guide for COVID for, you know, for post-production companies, keeping you up to date, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, it's like having a, <clears throat> which to me has even more value because it's like, it's a nomination that comes from my peers. You know, it's not like some producer, which also has value, but like, it's not like a bunch of producers get together and, and just, just select the nominees, but it's been like people from the industry and from my industry doing the nominations. And it's even more special because we are the only boutique that it's nominated for a color award out of the, there's like three categories. There's features, uh, commercials, and uh, TV series. Of the three categories, um, I think like 12 nominations is company three. (laughs) And then uh, another, the other one is Sim and The Farm, all of them very, very big companies. And we are the we're the only boutique who managed to to make the cut, so Excellent. we're extremely proud. Excellent. Let's go over that again. So it's not an award where you submit and hope someone picks. Somebody actually nominates you to be in mm-hmm. there, yeah? Uh, the <clears throat> the selection, I think the, the selection is blind. Right. Basically, when we are uploading the clips and all right. that stuff, yeah. um, you cannot say who did it. Right. I mean, okay. you cannot you say the show. I think they don't, when, when they're figuring out the nominees they don't even know what show it's from uh they definitely don't know who did it so that gives it a little bit more fairness uh and then you upload the clip with specific slates that they tell you to to put that it just have like a serial number uh and then from all of those they they just select uh five nominees per category great so for those of you listening to this before the awards which is this coming thursday uh, LA time. Uh, great. If it's after that, the awards now one may have won, he may have lost. We don't know. Depends when you listen to this podcast. So uh, oh, tell me. Know. Yeah, I hope so. Good luck. Tell me it, about it, the show. The, the ceremony The ceremony starts at 5.30 on Thursday, the 19th. Um, but I think our award is going to be the last one. It's going to be like towards the end of the ceremony around, I think it's 15 to 7, something like that. Um, so we'll see. It's uh, it's it's very exciting. And uh, as for the show, the show that I, we're competing with is The Alienist, Angel of Darkness, which is the second season of the series. Um, internationally, it's being distributed by uh, by Netflix. So in, in, in the US, it's Paramount, TNT, but uh, everywhere in the world, it's a Netflix original. So you can enjoy it if you have Oh, great. Netflix. I'll get it. Yeah, no, I can get it here. Is it HDR? Nope. No, it's, it, that's interesting. It's 
it's something that is very interesting. You should will be surprised how the networks uh, the networks are a little bit behind technology-wise from the streaming companies. You know, like it's it's funny because they make a difference. It's like no, no, no. This is network. This is not streaming. And you're like, well, but they have better quality stuff. <laughs> you know, and that I feel like that's why Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and all of them are, and even Apple TV. It's eating them up and it's because they are still in the old business model you know it's uh like for the last five years uh five or six years i've been delivering 4k shows for the last three years i've been delivering hdr shows this this has been the first large show that has not been either 4k or hdr really we just deliver hd really wow that is different isn't it Mm-hmm. And 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 some networks, they don't even work in full HD. Believe it or not, I mean, some networks are still in 720p. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. So so this is a, a pretty big show. Like it is. Your company is relatively small. Like you're going to get some of the big guys. I could think mm-hmm. to tick the boxes for a network show or a big show like that. Are you finding it hard going up against the bigger guys when you're talking to producers and like, can you deliver such a show? How, how do you go about that? We can definitely do. Um, we have to fight. It, the funny thing is that you don't have to fight with the quality of your work or, or, or anything like that. It's more about what is around it. You know, the, the big facilities have made sure when you go to a big facility, it's usually every all the costs are really, really, really high. You know, every, everything costs a lot, and they made sure that most of the producers uh, feel like if they don't, they they have those costs because there are like so many things involved, which they are. It is true, but they just have to justify so many people that are involved in this work, right? So at the end of the day, it feels like if and they they make the producer feel like if they don't do it with them, then something is gonna go wrong. Uh, on the other hand. And that we have to thank for that to resolve making it free and all that stuff. A bunch of people have come out that all of a sudden they claim they are colorists when they're not, or they don't have the infrastructure. It's just a guy grading on on a TV in his house, you know? So producers are worried. Producers are creatures of risk management. You know, I mean, like they, 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 they are... They, they, they try to anticipate whatever possible issues and they feel like if you they go to a bigger structure they're more protected like uh, well if i'm in my biggest structure if somebody gets sick then i get another guy or if i need an overnight then i don't have to care if anybody's tired or not i just get another person you know it's and that you have with that factory approach of the big facilities so you that's usually the fear you know like uh, and for that the best, the best tool is to just have a sit down with the producers bring them to your office bring them explain them your workflow and show them not just what you do, but how you do it. You know, the way I always tell them is like, look, we have the approach of a, the approach of a boutique, you know, the working closely with our clients, having a, a relaxed atmosphere where you can sit down and, 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 and create, like we're not like looking at the watch every five minutes. You can have a more relaxed environment but we have the backbone of a facility, the technical backbone, you know, like uh, we have half a petabyte of storage, like a uh, super high speed, one gigabit up and down internet connection, uh, Netflix compliance security, Netflix and MPIA compliance security, different rooms, different systems, different people. I mean, we have the infrastructure. We have been delivering shows for the longest in, in every format, like, uh, and, and, and that can be proven and that can be shown you yeah. know so i think it's important to just put those fears at ease yeah and just and, to, and, and show them the difference just to clarify so we're talking about lightbender this is your company here or have you got investors or partners or is it you it's or my company just no, you. no partners no investors it started okay. very small and uh i started very small in just a little room and little by little we, we kept growing and now we have five color rooms and a nice office with a lot of Legos <laughs> and stuff and awards. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's, it's just my company. And this is my third company. I've had, uh, when I was in Spain, I had my first, I, I kind of had a tendency to have my own place. Um, I opened my first company when I was only 17 years old in Spain. 
uh, and basically because there was what I wanted to do with at that time was computer graphics and animation and whatnot. There was nowhere where I could study that in Spain. That's we're talking about 24 years ago. You know, and my family didn't have money to send me to stay to the U.S. or anything like that. Where, where in Spain so, were you, Juan? Whereabouts? From Madrid. I'm from Madrid. And, uh, and yeah, so I just got together with three other guys and we started learning by doing, you know, and uh, that's how it started. Then after that, I moved to England for a little bit. I was in England for almost five years. When I got back after freelancing for a little bit, uh, I put together another company with uh, like another company as a partner uh, and it worked for some time. And then at, at one point I had the opportunity to, to come over here to the US and I decided to just shut down over there, come over here. So I've tried every single format, like partners, business with investors. And now I don't want to hear about anybody else. I just want to do my thing. <laughs> so how did you, because a lot of people want to make the transition, okay? They're in the country, they're working in, they're working as a colorist and they think, right, how can I make a move uh, from one country to another? Is it possible? Can you do it? And how hard is it? And so, like, how did you do it, really? Um, well, in my case, I was extremely, extreme. I was extremely lucky uh, to be able to be at the right time, in the right place, with the right knowledge. Uh, I think moving to another country is easy. Moving successfully to another country, not so much. Uh, I see a lot of people that comes and goes, you know, or people like, oh, I want to be an actor. I want to be a DP or a cinematographer. So I'm going to go to LA. Well, this is the best place and the worst place. It's yeah. the best place because, yeah, you have access to most, more production than anywhere else in the world. But you also have the worst, I mean, the most intense competition ever that you have ever faced with people that most yeah. of them are better than you. So that's difficult. Plus, you have to really study what are the immigration policies, uh, how the visas work. Like even even something like that, it costs a lot of money. You know, I mean, it can cost you like up to ten thousand dollars of legal uh, attorney fees and all kinds of things to put together a visa, and it takes time. You know, so it's not easy. Uh, in my case, uh, I came for holidays. I, I was just here. Uh, I came for a couple of like conventions and stuff like that, and I saw the possibilities. I mean, I, at, at that time, 3D stereoscopy was starting to boom, bloom or boom. <laughs> Both. Uh, more like boom, because then all of a sudden everybody was doing it. And, um, and Mystica had positioned itself as the best tool in the market, along with Pablo, maybe. I mean, Pablo and Mystica were constantly fighting, like, uh, which one is better kind of thing. And everybody else was kind of behind. Um, and... I had been using Mystica, which is my, my software of choice for a long time already. And I have been doing stereoscopic projects in Spain and it was a good moment. So I started figuring out the whole visa situation, uh, got an immigration attorney, started figuring out and kind of planning ahead, uh, saving money to make sure that I will be able to pay all those fees and stay here for a little bit until um, that happened. And then once I got my visa, once I got my work visa and I came over here, Right at the time where Bat Robot was starting their first 3D movie, they just invested in a Mystica. They were looking for somebody to, at, at the beginning, just train them, train their own people to do stuff. And when I went there and they realized that I was not just a demo artist or that, but I was like an operator, a operator and colorist. And, and I've been doing this for a long time. They were like, well, why don't you just stay working <laughs> what with year? us? What year are we talking movie? about? Are we talking late 90s, early noughties? Uh, that's a Star Trek Into the... It was, I mean, I came to the US a little bit before that, um, but that was Star Trek Into Darkness, which is... I have the poster right there. I know it was released in May 17, but I don't know the year. Uh, could that be... Six, seven years ago, something like that. Eight yeah. years ago, something like that. Yeah. So that was when stereo was sort of at its boom time, wasn't it? Six. Exactly seven, right. Everything. I mean, it was crazy in in the in those two three years. It was one after the other. I did like a Amazing Spider-Man, Prometheus, um, Star Trek Into Darkness, Transformers. All of those were mostly stereo, uh, but because my background was also color. I mean, for all of them, I I also did like all internal color grading and stuff like that on specifically on Star Trek and a couple of others. On, on Transformer, for example, was purely um, stereoscopic work. Yeah, so you were like a stereographer, I suppose, was the name, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Yep. And I know that, it was man, it was, a, it was a huge thing. And that, 
is where Mr. Were you you were you on the Mystica in Spain before you came to the States? I had a Mystica. I on my company in Spain. Uh, I had a Mystica. Uh, like I've I've been knowing the SGO guys for a long time. Uh, because they were the, I mean, if you remember the alias Wavefront software, yeah. they were like a 3D, like yeah. a like CG software yeah. uh, before it became Maya. Um, I used to do that because I used to work with uh, on VFX and animation. And uh, and I knew the guys because they were the distributors of alias Wavefront and they sold me my first Silicon Graphics. So I, we, we were already in contact. Um, they had a software called Haleo, which is what the Mystica is based on. Uh, it ran on Silicon Graphics and that we had a demo for. Um, so I was very familiar with it. And then there was this little short film that I was doing for fun. Uh, they were just doing the VFX and, um, and they, they, all of a sudden they didn't have a colorist and they were like, Hey, can you do the color for us? Uh, and I told I mean, like, I, I will give it a go. You know, I, I, I can try. I mean, I've been working with image for the longest time. I understand channels, color spaces, everything. I mean, I've never done color specifically, but let's try it. And I remember this was in Malaga, which is a city in the south of Spain, yeah. right? And in Spain, usually we don't use planes. I mean, we don't fly. We just drive, right? Yeah. But they were like, they were super nice. They were like, oh, we'll put you a plane so you can come to the to Malaga. And so like, no, 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 don't worry. I have a friend that can drive me down. Don't worry. <laughs> That's because I didn't know how to use the software. So while my friend was driving, it was like yeah. a five and a half hour drive. When my friend was driving, I was reading the manual on the on the passenger seat. <laughs> Literally, I was just reading the manual, making sure that I knew what I was doing. And I just sat on the session for the weekend and color graded the short. And I liked it. And I was like, well, this is this is fun, actually. Mate, that, is, that, that is a, that's a cool story. Uh, that, that was my starting color grading like over 15 years ago. Like wow. I just, it was a short, there was no risk. They had no... It was fun. It was friends, and it was a safe, safe thing, you know. So I was, I just bite the bullet, and we're like, yeah, I, I'll, yeah. I'll color it. I have no idea what I'm doing. Let me read the manual right now. You have and to. That take, was you have to take punts like that sometimes, and you get out you of your comfort zone, and you go, "Crikey, I'm, there's no way yeah. I'm going to be able to do this. It could be this director. It could be." Sometimes you got to take those opportunities, and you go there. You get well. And you can just get a lucky break like that that kicks you into something else. And absolutely. And sometimes it's a small thing. Yeah. You know, that's something that is interesting because I can trace some of the work that I have done, like even the big work, some of them I can trace back to a moment or opportunity where I was either working on a very small project or doing a favor for somebody or somebody knew somebody than that. It's it's very interesting because you never know. I mean, I think you also have to be careful because there is a lot of people out there trying to just take advantage of you and just getting you to work for free. Yeah. Uh, but you never know when you're doing a small project, what contacts is that going to open up? And a lot of the work, uh, uh, most of the work of finding work, it's, uh, I feel like a lot of it is word of mouth, you know, like, uh, like being a good professional, understanding your thing, be honest. I think there's people who don't, do that but like i feel like you have to be honest with your clients and if you make a mistake or if there's a problem to tell them and i think they value it they might be pissed at the beginning but then they realize that you tell things like they are and you're not trying to take advantage of them uh, yeah you know yeah. I, I totally agree and, you can get and i think that's important and little by little i mean you become you have a reputation and that reputation is about being solid if they know that you're solid and you do good work and you deliver and creatively you can manage yourself then you can do it you know it's very i think it's a very important to have professional integrity and to be generous not not just about your time but also about information you know not be i've had a lot of people in my room like feeling weird about asking for but why are you doing that like if they're asking for the secret recipe to like a magic potion and it's like no 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 i mean and, and then you explain them and you talk to them about bit depth and why this is broken and not and they they appreciate it because they have sometimes footage that is challenged on the technical side yeah. and they're like oh thank you so much i mean nobody have ever explained me that and that's because a lot of a lot of people a lot of colorists a lot of professionals like to keep the little information that they know like in their bottle so then clients don't know because then that then they can say it's just magic and pixie dust and it's not it should be it should be your work it should be your work what it's making a difference not the fact that you have some some knowledge of some dark art in in, in your sleeve you know so 
Let's talk about Mystica. So you've gone on a journey with it. I've seen it recently. I think they've made some great improvements and I think the GUI is certainly easy to use. And I would say if you're setting up a shop, it's certainly in a sort of higher level. You're either looking at your Mystic Gear Resolve or your Base Light. Yeah? They're like your three yeah. choices now. Uh, what do you like about it? Obviously, you've used it for a while, but what do you find that it's the go-to tool for you? I feel that it's a very... I always use the word versatility with it. You know, I think it's a very versatile tool because it allows you to work in the way that works for you. I feel like other, other tools are, are, are very rigid in the way they, they work. Uh, and and, and something, it's not that they have only a few effects or a few ways, but it's just like, this is the way and that's it. In Mystica, I find a lot of flexibility away from the color side. I mean, yeah, you have all the color tools that you, you may need. Uh, and, and everything, but because it also had, I mean, it had compositing tools way before Resolve had any of that. Uh, and it would be, it, it was very common to use those compositing tools in Mystica to do quick things with color grading as well. You know, I, I, I don't know how easy it is in Resolve right now, because I mean, you have the, f the fusion side, but it's like, you have to change the tab and do something else. And then you put it back to color. But if you want to change it, I don't know if you have to yeah. now go back and forth. I don't know exactly yeah. how they have it layout. On Mystica, you have it all there at any point you know and you can it's it has more of a like a node um structure but instead of those nodes you can have layers and it even have a view that it's like um like connected nodes the way people in resolve are used to see them you yeah. know what i mean yeah but on, besides all of that it's just their timeline the most unique thing about mystica because everything else is just different ways of doing things but if there's one thing that is absolutely unique with mystica and i have never seen anything like that is the timeline which sounds stupid because i mean timeline should be the thing that most people would not care about but i mean and i know some colorists that they just go shot to shot and they don't touch the timeline and if they need to change anything it's like they just walk away to the, from the room and then they have the assistant <laughs> fix it, you know, and call me when it's done. You know, uh, I'm not that kind of person. I like to get my hands dirty and I want, like to be in control of what I'm doing. Uh, and everybody on my team is the same. And, uh, and the timeline, it's so unique. It's infinite on every direction. You don't have layers. Like there's not video one, you know what I mean? Video one can be whatever. Mm. And at first it takes a little bit of time to, wrap your head around it but it's just that everything reads from the top down so whatever you put on top that's what's going to be seen it's like if you had a monitor scoping from the top down so imagine you're modifying a sequence i want to do an i want to try a new look on a sequence i literally i just select the shots move them up and then i have a, a duplicated sequence from what i had on the bottom that i can tweak and do whatever i want in a completely non-destructive yeah. way because i have the other one underneath and it's as simple as selecting and click a click 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 uh i think it's alt and just move it up and it duplicates yeah. super quick so it has a lot of those things that on a day-by-day -day basis or when you have to reconform a timeline like we had one with on the alienist we had uh, one of the episodes had a had a change there was a lot of changes on the episodes to the very very last moment it was never locking and one of those phantom locks that it's locked oh, it's yeah. not anymore never one of them was that they actually added time on the head because they were adding, I don't, I think it was on the previously on, uh, they were adding some shots and stuff. So basically you had to insert those shots and move everything, you know, move the whole timeline with all the markers and all that stuff. And people were, I mean, like editorial was doing it very slowly, making sure they nothing got screwed up. Uh, same thing with audio, you know, like all the layers. On Mystica, I can actually move the start point to wherever I want. Like, like like a zero like, really? or the hour one. I can I can okay. move it like if it was a marker. Right. Okay. So I literally grabbed it and yeah. moved it enough frames, and that's it. I was done in five seconds. Wow. So it's those little things yeah. that at one point when you're at the eleventh hour, with tired and with a bunch of things coming to you, being able to do these things is great. If you're, uh, for example, if you're if you like to get your hands dirty doing scripts or, or, or optimizing things uh, on in Mystica, almost every file is a text file that you can read. So sometimes I had to relink massive amounts, like do like a massive relink of files from one place to the other. Yeah. And 
instead of using the relink tool on the software, which usually takes a little bit because it's checking what things are and all that stuff, I knew what path had to change for another path. So I literally opened a text editor, changed the path, like search for this, change it for this, open the timeline, everything is linked. So in Lightbender, what have you got in terms of rooms? Have you got a, a, a screen in there, a, a projection room, or is it just a TV monitor type setups? We don't have projection room because when I was when I was in the process of looking for a new space, I realized that a projection room nowadays, unless you are again one of the unless you manage to book it for screeners and you also have audio post production, all that stuff, is difficult to have the room full all the time. You know, it was gonna be like a big expense and something that it was basically not gonna be utilized that often. Um, so I decided to just have regular rooms. I mean, nice, spacious rooms, but um, they're regular rooms with no projection. Uh, so the main, uh, the main client rooms, I have an uh, LG C8 for monitor referencing for clients. And then for me, I have X3, the X300. I nice. basically have the X300 in front of me with yeah. the interface monitors on the sides. Yeah. And then the client yeah. is in front of me with the chairs and he has the, the, the C8 55 inches with backlight and everything set up all the rooms are painted black etc etc yeah um so every room gets piped in from the machine room uh so i can like all the machines work together they're all connected network but if for whatever reason i wanted to put like one specific machine on any room i can literally just repatch it and it's in a different room so we have a lot of flexibility we also have one of the systems that i built in a way that it has like a, an internal array besides being connected to our sun it has like an internal nvme array that is fast as hell it's like four gigs a second I like it. Cool. Uh, uh, it does 8k in real time at yeah. 60 frames a second. real time i think it can get like 60 frames a second it's, it's ridiculous and um and the funny thing is that um on that thing uh like we can just it's a self-contained mystica so if at one point we have a feature that needs a theater that we want to do with projection, what we usually do is just four wall the, yeah. the theater and just bring our system. So we don't have to relay, we don't have to relay on them having a Mystica because they won't, most likely. Uh, we don't have to relay in their security because we have our own system. The client's hard drive, the, the client's footage does not leave our computers. So it's secure and it's encrypted. And I literally just need like a USB connection for keyboard, mouse, monitors, SDI, and I'm game. Cool. All right. So here's one. Here's a question for you. Netflix, yeah. knock on your door tomorrow and say we've got a Netflix show that might go to the cinema if people start coming back in the cinemas. What is your priority? Where do you start in terms of your color space, your P3, your 709? How do you start and sort of what's your workflow for a job like that? Well, a Netflix show might be a little bit different. I mean, if they're going to go theatrical, we definitely should start um, counting on a P3, uh, P3 reference for sure. Uh, I like to work on the format that is going to be seen the most or that is going to be seen first. Yeah. You know, uh, like if I have a movie, like a smaller movie, that they're going to have a theatrical release, but not that much, and they don't have a lot of budget. I usually strongly recommend them to just go, like, just focus on the Rec. 709 grade. I mean, we can do a trim pass to P3, like, to enhance yeah. some things. But the truth is, the way I explain it is, like, look, it's a bigger bucket. It doesn't mean that it's going to look better. I mean, like, it's just a bigger container that has more colors. But your whole Rec. 709 colors uh, gamut fits within the P3. So unless you're doing something like Star Trek or Star Wars, where yes. you have lasers and phasers, something super saturated, super bright, yeah. you're not going to be close to or, or like very deep blues or very deep reds yeah you're not gonna you're not gonna be close um to the p limits of the p3 gamut you're not gonna pass probably the limits of the rec 709 gamut yeah. so for most of those projects it, it just makes sense to just stay in rec 709 if it's netflix if it's a bigger movie we're talking about maybe a 20 30 million dollar movie that it is going to have a theatrical run definitely working in p3 um Depending if they're going to have a HDR an HDR pass, then the more uh, the more to it. The, usually, the way we work, depending on the project, our preference is usually to work in logarithmic or working with the raw directly on the camera, and then work with a LUT. Which our LUT is like I usually use almost the same LUT for every show, but it's like a super basic LUT. It's like an S curve with a little. I mean, it has yeah. almost nothing on it. I don't like 
very complex LUTs because sometimes you find yourself chasing your tail. Like sometimes you're trying to select something that is blue and there's no blue on the image. It's the LUT that is introducing the blue and it's forcing you to start putting stuff on top of the LUT yeah. and it ends up being a mess. So I prefer to work with a very basic LUT, um, usually from a log sys uh, source. But if I need to work on ACES, I can work on ACES. You know, it's going to depend on the client. And I like to have those conversations as early in the process as possible. I always say that post-production starts in pre-production. And I like to be there from the time that they're doing camera tests and run the camera tests through the color pipeline and possibly sit with the DP and do even more extensive camera tests. Like uh, I remember there, there was this movie that I did. It was a small movie. And the DP was terrified because he, they were forcing him to work with the Blackmagic camera. And he is a DP that he's used to work with the Alexa. He had never worked with the Blackmagic camera in his life. And I was telling him like, well, let's just get the camera since the production company has it. Let's get the camera and then let's shoot everything that we can think of. Like daylight, nighttime, over, overexposed, underexposed. Let's find where the sweet spot is because that camera has a sweet spot for sure. I mean, they, the engineers wanted to do something with it. Yeah. And, uh, and we did all those tests. We put it, we brought it into Mystica and we just started stretching and breaking the image until we found the issues. Um, turned out that when working on ProRes 444XQ, that camera was relatively solid on the shadows and the midtones, and it was starting to break on the highlights. So everything was mostly a little bit underexposed, and we managed to make it make it work thanks to that pre-production process, you know, and and thinking about the the workflow. Uh, I don't believe that one workflow can rule them all as some places this have the workflow and they force the client to work on their workflow. Um, I feel like we as service providers, we have to be adaptable and not every pro, every project has the same needs. I mean, if you're doing a big feature, it's going to have a different need that like a show like the alienist where we were working with all the VFX where EXRs, everything was anamorphic. It's not the same as maybe a smaller show where maybe the best option is to just do the VFX plates on ProRes 444 or 444 XQ because it's self-contained and, and they, you don't have to deal with frames or, or big sizes. Yeah. Um, on another show, maybe it's a documentary and they have so many different sources that it's not worth it to really go full ACES color managed. And you just want to just go straight with what you have and just do it one at a time, you know? So I feel like you have to be adaptable. So here's the question. So a lot of people say to me, well, surely conforming is going to be the best for the grade, but I know a lot of shows, they're conforming in another box, sending it mm -hmm. to the color, and then there are the DPX or EXRs maybe now. Do, yep. you, do you go, well, yeah, both can work or you prefer one workflow? Uh, how do you sit on that one? For me, usually, if I can have access, especially on a show that is not locked, if I can have access to the camera raw, I prefer that um, because that way we have to do changes. We have the full clips and, uh, and we work with that. Um, if the show is locked, uh, we're fine doing online and just rendering to our, our, our storage. Um, in that regard, I usually do EXRs because yeah. I like I want to keep the whole latitude of the file just in case. We have done a lot of tests with the different compression ratios and yeah. stuff like that until we found our sweet spot. And um, and in those cases, it's it just depends of what you get. I mean, if you're getting Alexa, I'm perfectly happy working with Log C. Uh, if we're working, with, I mean, unless I'm onlining it and rendering to image, I don't commit. To a, to a color space or to a gamut gamma yeah. setting. Yeah. Uh, if we do, then it's a matter of, I mean, red now it's much easier with their, their new their new color pipeline. It's much, much, much easier, yeah. more more solid. Um, Alexa, you have Log C, um, other cameras, depending if you're working with Canon or stuff. I have a tendency to put everything in Log C before work sometimes, but again, it depends on the show. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes... Yeah. Sometimes you just want to put it into ACES. Yeah. ACES CCT or something like that works better. Yeah. I think you have to play with the footage and test it and stretch it. And yeah. based on the conversations that you have had with your yeah. DP uh, and the style that you're going for, to try your look for whatever workflow that you're... Well, let's talk about VFX. So you've won a job and you're handling everything. Do you do VFX there or do you sub visual effects out? And if you sub them out, what do you mm -hmm. give them? 
Are you grading plates? Are you giving them the raw? Are you making EXRs and giving them? How does it, how do you handle? Because a lot of people ask me this question. Yeah. Once again, it depends on the show, but usually our preference, we can do VFX here. Uh, we have handled VFX for some shows. Uh, we are happy to work with vendors as well. I mean, VFX is my background, so I feel very comfortable when it's shows that I can help yeah. out. Um, um, I'm very happy putting together a team and, and working it out. Uh, Usually, I prefer to work with external vendors, vendors that we usually have relationship with. Um, that way, it's one less headache for me. Um, so either or. Uh, when it comes down to VFX, we, ex we enforce to be us who export the plates. I think that's the keystone of, to making sure that everything works fine. You have to be the one exporting those plates. If those plates are going to be DPXs or EXRs, or again, ProRes 444 or whatever, it will depend on the size of the show, probably the budget of the show and the vendors, you know, because some vendors don't know how to handle, I mean, they have their pipeline set up for a EXR. Maybe they have their pipeline, like, in, in this, in the Alienist, we had a vendor who had their pipeline set up for one flavor of EXRs. Oh. Like EXR can have multiple flavors, yeah. compressions and stuff. And they also had their pipeline optimized for one of them. So we have to deliver it like that. And it kind of forced us to put it like that for everybody else. Yeah. Um, but it is very important that you control your plates because that's what's going to dictate uh, how the VFX are going to come back. So all the work that you have to do to decide the color space of the movie or the gamut and gamma of the movie and how are you going to work, you should do before that. Or if not, put yourself in a spot where you're comfortable enough that you're going to be able to tweak it, right? Uh, once you send it, I always recommend to send what I call the plate zero to yeah. have them just render any, any plate. doesn't matter, any of them. If you want to do one that is very contrasting and very saturated, great. But whatever, just do a plate give it to them and ask them to patch it through their whole pipeline. Like treat, yeah. like add a circle in the center. Yes. doesn't matter. Let's yeah. do whatever to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then send it back to me. Yeah. And then A, B, those two, those two images, the plate that you sent and the stuff that you, that you recovered, not just, I mean, in Mystica it's super easy because I use like a 3D stereo node and I can see both, both yeah. images on the vector yeah. scopes and all that stuff. So I use the stereo node to compare a lot. It's super, super yeah. nice. But if you, on any other project, just do a difference or try to put both images yeah. on the vector scopes yeah. uh, so you can see them yeah. and compare them. Make sure that they're not clipping away data. Make sure that they're not reducing the bits because sometimes their pipeline might be reducing the bits even if the format doesn't. Like yeah. I've had stuff that on the scopes look 8-bit but the show the files were 16 bit yeah you know because i mean it's a container you can put yeah. whatever you want inside of it yeah so their pipeline was limited usually it's people who yeah. work with after effects yeah. their pipeline was set up to 8 bit yeah. so they were doing the whole thing on 8 bit and exporting to a 16 bit tiff which doesn't matter if you're not i'd say you what, what, what i wish i'd done that on this movie i'm working on at the moment uh, that would have saved me a little bit of pain done that you've had a lot of tests yeah yeah yeah, Rex 709 it's, it's phones not, comped into a, a red log film background, that sort of thing, yeah. I, I think it's something that you always have to do because it's, uh, at the end of the day, you you test stuff early when there is time because at the end of the day, after they have done the work, they're going to be complaining about changing and all that stuff. And listen, there are some times where it makes sense to do the VFX over the final graded, lighted, linear shot because maybe yeah. it's a glow or something that works better yeah. in linear and that's a project by project um, scenario. But for the most part, what they give you should be the same thing I, that they're giving yeah, them. I'm, to I'm totally with you. And you don't want these last minute headache because we know the VFX is going to run out. We know we're coloring, we're going to go to the deadline. It always happens. Yep. It never changes, does it? So if we can go up, and even if they don't know, I say, just ask. Well, I don't assume yeah. everything. Just say, what would you want here? Can we share some fire? It doesn't take long. Do one as a test, and then you know you're right for the 100 or so VFX shots that you're going to get. That's absolutely right. Cool, man. It, Let, it takes nothing to yeah. do a test and run it through the whole pipeline and make sure that you're solid. Now, you mentioned Star Trek Edge of Darkness, so we're talking big, big movie. Mm -hmm. what, is, what was it like working on that sort of type of movie, and how do the pressures... Is it really long days? Is it crazy deadlines on a big film like that? And how was that for you? Oh, well, 
that one was a lot of hours and a lot of deadlines for sure. Uh, on my last, my last week on Star Trek Into Darkness before the release, I did 120 hours on a week. My average the last month or so, it was like 100 hours a week. So it was a lot, a lot, a lot of work um, and doing stuff very, 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 very close from the release date. Uh, but it was a really good experience. And I think it's all, it was also because it was Bat Robot. And in Bat Robot, everything, it, it really worked like a family. We were like a bunch of people there. There was like, a, and you had a lot of people. You had like a, the editors, assistant editors. You had first assistant editors, second assistant editors, the 3D editor, assistant 3D editor, VFX editor, assistant VFX editor, and all these people that you were constantly interacting with. And, and everybody were like super professional, super on their game, like really motivated. And it did feel like we were all going to war, but we were going to war together, you know, like going to Helm's Deep, kind of like <laughs> it was uh, fighting the good fight. And it was it was fun. It was hard, but it was fun. And and it gave you the feel of, you know, getting together and let, let, let's do this thing, you know, and, and, and JJ as a director and producer, he really encouraged that kind of behavior on the team, you know, that kind of of not only passion, but also like togetherness. Like I remember we will be doing VFX reviews and there will be like 25 people in the theater, you know, from like from from the people involved in the VFX to assistance on that stuff. And on some VFX, JJ will be like, what do you guys think? Anybody has any note? And he really meant it. You know, with some people, they just say it because they have to say it. Yeah. He really meant it. I mean, like, like, okay, I only have two eyes. Does anybody sees anything that I'm not seeing right now? And I think it's important to have that environment of of safety which is what i mean i took a lot of the ideas that i found about robot to apply to my own company in that regard as a safety place as a as a, a nice place where you can have those conversations without having to keep pose you know um on the work itself it was a lot of work we were taking care internally of most uh most of the 3d depth balancing uh the movie was shot in 2d and converted to 3d um so there was a lot of different versions of everything a lot of different versions of vfx lots of different versions of after the movie was done of every single shot yeah. was a 3d shot so we had versions of every single shot of the movie multiple versions sometimes um we were doing all the conform internally uh the final grade was happening at company three uh but we took out the whole side of conform and assembly the movie we took it out i mean and everything was being done internally about robot uh because it was quicker you know it was quicker we were able to review things e easier we don't we didn't have to deal with versioning or anything like that we'll just render dpxs send it to them with an edl it's like okay cut it and grade it you know so, and i was so also asking a question just so they just graded one of the eyes did they or did you or did they have to grade? no they had to do both they did both so you prepped it all for them and then they put it into their resolve and did a left eye, right yeah. eye, stereo grade, copying the eyes across. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, which we, with it's it's something that for the most part, it will work. But like, for example, if you're doing selections or stuff like that, when you're working in stereo, if you're doing like masks or color selections, you have to be very careful because it's it cannot be on the same spot for both eyes. Yeah. Like if this was stereo, yeah. like one eye will be like, this yeah. and the other eye yeah. will be like this you know i'm just moving horizontally a little bit compared to my background yeah. so if i have if i have a mask on my face you have to make sure that that mask stays yeah. at the depth where my face is because if not you will see it you will feel it so you have yeah. it requires an extra level of attention to those details uh but yeah i mean you have to definitely create both eyes and uh and just go do back and forth yeah and cool. on our side cool. we were also taking but that was for the final, final grade or the trailers or anything like that. But all the internal color grading that we were doing, uh, like for reviews or producer reviews and all that stuff, all of that, uh, I was doing it. And then we were working on Mystica for that. Cool, man. So let's it was an interesting work. Yeah. It was very mixed. You know, we had the deal with the conversion people and the VFX people and company three and changes and editorial so it was it was uh, it was a very 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 interesting challenge so and we did a similar for star wars as well oh star wars another another small little film that people might have heard of yeah yeah <laughs> so what's it like 
working in Santa Monica, say Hollywood, Los Angeles. Are you are you hanging out with your other colorist buddies? I mean, during COVID, obviously nobody's doing anything. But is it is it, is it a bit of a social scene? Do people get an all right on happy to talk about stuff, or is it not like that there? What's it like? Sometimes, I mean, there are some events. There's like a, you have like a, something called the Blue Collar Post Collective. Yeah. Uh, which uh, it's a very nice community. It's a very nice Facebook community. I mean, for anybody in the post-production world, I, I really recommend it. Um, and they organize some gatherings uh, here and in New York, in LA and New York. And it's usually a lot of lots of fun because you have a lot of people just talking about what they do. I mean, most most of the people is usually on the editorial side, like assistant editors, editors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there are some colorists, there are some online editors, there are some audio guys. So it's fun. I always have I always have a lot of fun with audio guys because it's like especially with audio mixers because i feel like we have the same job but we're not competition yeah it's like we're we're giving something it's like hey this polish this turd <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. for some point but you know what i mean it's like hey we have this bread make it look pretty or make it sound pretty and you have to deal with your raw or your recordings and you have would you have to deal with producers that cannot explain what they want you have to deal with conforms you have to deal with deliverables you have to deal with deadline we do the same thing in two fields that are completely away from each other and not competing with each other so it's 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 very 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 fun to talk about anecdotes and kind of vent away uh, without any <laughs> any filter you know what I mean? We're but just, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we're just uh, we're just helping tell the story, aren't we? Either pictures or or mm -hmm. sound. We're doing the same thing, really, adding mood, telling the story for the director. So you exactly, right. it is, we are day, doing a very similar thing. It's the same thing. It's uh, we're trying to make the best that we can do with what we're given. We're trying to add that little spark that makes it go all the way where the feelings are supposed to be we're trying to get as close from the vision that the director and the producers and the cinematographers yeah. had and yeah. then some you know and sometimes we are lucky enough to be yeah. able to add a little bit to it you yeah. know help at the end is help tell the story in the best possible way and 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 sometimes it's just not don't get in the way you know you cannot if you if you get a, a sometimes you get so caught up on on the color and the possibilities of the image that but you cannot forget that the image is serving a purpose and yeah. its purpose is to tell a story you know and it has to make sense it doesn't matter how beautifully they shot something and i've had this situation like i remember there's a couple of sequences um that i remember i've had this issue that you graded in a in a way that is absolutely pretty but it's a moment that is like very grave for the story or the, the, the tone was like, the idea of the tone was completely different, even though they had a beautiful day when they were shooting yeah. and you have to go the other way. And that's part of your, that's your job. Your job is be able to make, make the images, tell the story and spark the right feelings on the audience at the right moments, you know? Yeah, it is. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, you're right. Now, here's the big question. Where do you stand on like the Netflix one master fits all? We have to deliver the HDR Dolby Vision and the SDR is derived from that. Where do you sit on that? Well, it's not the ideal way for the SDR. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% in the same boat as Walter. <laughs> I'm 100% at the same. I mean, it's so funny. It's like it, uh, it's, when I, I was listening to his podcast, he was like, this is exactly what it is. I don't know if because it's, we both come from Europe and we are like, we have this kind of Latin, like, yeah, 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 I know how I'm supposed to do it, but this is how I want to do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know if it's that or what is it, but I, you know, to me, it doesn't make any sense that you spend the most time on the master that the least amount of people is going to see. It doesn't make any sense. You know, if you spend like most of your hours on the HDR master and then you trim past a Rec 709, no. I mean, I want to do the best Rec 709 that I can do, not only because of that, but also it's because we still don't have language for HDR on, on, on producers' mind and cinematographers and directors' mind. Some of them are starting to learn about, to, to learn how to see it and how to, the possibilities of it, but that's not an area where they feel comfortable, you know? So usually when you start in HDR, 
things either explode and are way too bright and colorful that they should be, or all the opposite. They are afraid of it and they're pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing yeah. it down. Yeah. So, and you have nothing in between. You have those two no. poles, right? Uh, so I feel like working on Rec. 709, doing a good Rec. 709 master where you can have huge, I mean, you, you're used to work there that way and, and it, you can have your latitude. You can, you can find the soul of the project in Rec. 709 without a problem. Yeah work on a, on a way that you know how to work, that everybody's comfortable working and have your show, have your movie, your TV series, have your show. Once you have it, then go to HDR. It, that process has two advantages. And I've been having these conversations with Dolby uh, a lot, you know, and I was telling them like, guys, I understand that. You, and I think they're listening now. You know, at the beginning, they were like, no, 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 that's not the way. Because that's the engineer's pipe dream. You know, it's one master. We don't have to worry about anything. It's like the IMFs for Netflix. Um, but it's not useful for the creative side. So, and they're starting to listen. And, and I was telling them, it was like, look, I mean, like, once I have the style of my show, once we know what we're doing, and we're happy with what we have. If at that point I go to HDR, it's like a breath of fresh air. You know, it's like the areas where we were struggling, where we were losing skies, where we were compressing the image, then all of the time we can, boom, yeah. lift them up. Yeah. All I, you can find more yeah. detail in your image, you know, because that's another thing. I don't think HDR is about brighter. It's about yeah. more colorful. It's, it's color about volume. color. Color volume. It's about texture. Yeah, it's about color volume. It's about texture. It's about like some of my favorite shots on HDR is actually night shots. Because you can, you have the sparks, or like if you have a sunny day, to feel the sun, to really see that light bright, yeah. because it's the sun, not yeah. just because it's HDR, but because it's justified. Yeah. If you're in the interior, it does not make any sense. And and I think, and I've, I, I can tell you, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote about that in a second. Um, just to wrap that side up, it's that once you get to that point, everybody's super excited because they know how they show look, and now you're taking it to the next level with HDR, but it's still the same show. In the other way, it just doesn't feel, they, people don't feel comfortable. So I would recommend to anybody doing this workflow that is extremely important that you make sure that you work in a way that is non-destructive. You know, and that's something like, like I, I, I constantly have an eye with it. I even created a couple of my own gizmos um, to make sure that I never clip the signal, not on the blacks, not on the whites. I never clip it. I'm always away from pure black or pure black or, or pure white. And that's because I want to have the possibilities of, of, of doing whatever I need with the signal later. You know, if you clip it, then you're dead. Yeah. So as long as you work in a non-destructive way, you can do it. Now, the second the second advantage of this method is that you have a perfectly looking Rec. 709 master that you can use as a reference when you're doing your HDR pass. Yeah. You don't have to kind of see like, okay, I it's not like, I think this is looking good. No, no, no. You, you know what the client approved. You have what the client approved. You have the Rec. 709 that everybody liked. So try to get it as close from that as possible. You know, like, uh, and it doesn't matter if you're doing like a full trim pass with full analysis, or if you do the Walter trick of just doing <laughs> one setting, which I've done myself. <laughs> to be honest. Uh, doesn't matter in which way, or if you're de if you're delivering an HDR10, or if you're clipping at a thousand nits, or if you're doing full four thousand or whatever, P3 color space or Rec7, uh, sorry, P3 gamut or Rec2020 gamut, whatever it is you have your Rec. 709 reference and the way it's supposed to look when you apply the metadata. Yeah. So that's another advantage. Yeah, I do. I do. The, the anecdote that I was going to tell you, that yeah. you're going to get a kick out of it. I'm not going to... I had a, a DP friend, a very high-profile DP friend. Uh, a friend introduced us and, and we, we we hit it off. He was a super fun guy. And, um, and one of the conversations were like, yeah, I hate HDR. Like, why do you? No, I mean it's kind of cool. I mean, I understand it's kind of different at the beginning, but it's nice like, oh, shit. I mean, like I had some of my stuff, and I had some of my stuff uh, done in HDR. I saw them of HDR, and I hated it. It's like, and I was like, well, then that means that you didn't see the right HDR. I mean, they didn't do the demo right. It's like, but I, I had a demo done at Technicolor. It's like, I, I understand, but sometimes they, I mean. They, they didn't show you the right thing. I'm, I don't care if it's Technicolor or if it's whoever. They didn't show you right. Let's do something. Bring me your footage. 
bring me your footage to my office. And uh, because he was like, it's too bright, it's too, it's too, it's too saturated. And, and he's totally right. Like a lot of the demos that even, even big companies, a lot of the demos that they're doing are just, they feel like the demos that they do to sell TVs. Yeah. You know what they show you like super saturated and super bright and the beach and this. And it's like, no, man, that's not the way. And, uh, and, and I asked this guy to bring some of his, his stuff, some of his old stuff that he having, he had shot on film and everything to my office to do the HDR pass on that. And we did it. And I show him some of the HDR that I did for some other shows and the difference between the Rex 709 and stuff. And he ended up loving it and, and talking with everybody. No, 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 because there is a good way of doing HDR and a bad way of doing HDR. And that, that made me super proud, you know, because it's one of those things that at the end of the day, it's a technology. It's a new technology and you just have to learn how to use it. And it's not like you have you have some people on the internet bashing like like uh, the Mandalorian or something else because it's not true HDR, because it's not bright enough. It's like you don't understand what HDR is about. Yeah. I mean, the moment you're in 200 nits, you're already past what Rec. 709 can show. Yeah. You know, the fact that you have a huge bucket doesn't yeah. mean that you have to fill up the whole bucket. It has to make sense yeah. for the show and for the sequence. If you have sequences that are not supposed to be super bright, why would you just push it for the sake of it? It's not, we're not selling TVs here. We're trying to deliver shows and we're trying to make the shows feel the right way. You know what I would love? I would love Netflix to somehow re release figures how many people are watching the shows on a TV? How many yeah. like on an iPad and a phone? Because it's only going to be going up on devices, isn't it? I yeah. don't know. I've what always had that. I, I don't know. I, I have an opposite opinion to that. I've I've had a lot of people saying that like or we're working on a show in streaming and people saying like, nah, I'm people are just going to see it on a tablet. It doesn't matter. It's like, do you watch shows on a tablet? I mean, you sometimes you watch something on a tablet. Sometimes you're back when we were able to go outside and go to the gym. We will watch maybe something on the phone when we were doing cardio or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but that's not your preferred way of doing stuff. I mean, yeah. I think almost everybody really enjoys to sit down on their couch and watch their TV. Quality TV. I think that Here's the question, right? In the States, yeah. to get 4K HDR, Netflix, mm -hmm. you have to pay more money, yeah? Higher I rate, so. isn't it? You play I think the extreme app. Now, what happens with your iPad? Is that the same subscription? Does the iPad suddenly go? Because iPad do about 500 nits off standard, doesn't it? So yeah. I'm not sure about 600 nits. So like if you've got Netflix HDR option and you paid more money, are you getting that on your iPad? Or is the iPad always HDR somehow? Because it can show you more nits. Well, it's not just about that. I mean, then that's where we are getting into a that's where we're getting into the tricky, the real tricky, tricky, tricky conversation. And that's why HDR have been able to have way better penetration than 3D had. Because on 3D, the TVs had to be physically different, yeah. you know? But on the TV world, most of the TVs had already been made brighter just because they were, they could make it brighter and because they wanted to stand up from the other TV. So yeah. most of the TVs, they were already doing, they were already hitting five or 600 nits. Uh, just with SDR content, just with regular content, just because they wanted to make give you the possibility of watching the TV on bright daylight, yeah. you know, because they need the need. That's why the iPad or the iPhone can get so bright because you are outside on the sun and you have to be able to see your screen. Um, so the the whole the trick it's not just the cap the brightness capabilities of your display, but it's also the fact that it's able to have the enough gamut to show the, the, the HDR primaries yeah. enough contrast ratio to be able to, to do that. Because if you have like a backlit iPad, even if it goes back, if it goes up to 600 nits, but the base, the base black is 10 nits or 20 nits, then that's not HDR. That's, you don't have enough ratio, you yeah. know? So I think that the, the screen has to be capable of really, um, providing you with the right performance and interpret the HDR signal, which is the other thing. I mean, it has to be able to interpret the PQ, the PQ signal and, and give you all that range. As subscriptions goes, I don't know how it goes. Because, I mean, like if you don't have an HDR subscription, even if you watch it in your HDR iPad, 
it's not going to show you HDR because the signal is not going to be kick, kicking in. I mean, it's not going to get the metadata that the stream no. is HDR, yeah. hence the PQ. It's not going to yeah. be a PQ curve, so you're yeah. just going to watch a show brighter. Yeah. Um, Apple TV is different because, I mean, their service, I mean, they want to promote the fact that they have HDR on their, on their systems and all that stuff. And with a basic subscription, if they have content that is HDR, it's going to show it to you in HDR. So with Apple, Apple TV Plus is different. Um, but again, that's because they want to keep sending more devices, wow. you know, and now yeah. things like, I mean, the, the T-shirt that you're wearing, you know, Frame.io is now also doing HDR review on, on Apple devices, which is awesome. You know, the fact that little by little, we're going to, it's not the same. It's never going to be the same as watching, um, as doing color on, a, on an X300. It's never going to be the same, but at least you can show something to your client yeah. that it's a bit closer from what it'd be like. No, just imagine it, you know, yeah. like and in these days, like right now, we're all working with with streaming options or stream box. Or, I mean, we have stream box in the office for for remote reviews and whatnot. And um, and I had some producers that had to connect through an iPad. You know, and what we have done with the iPad is like, okay, set it up to this. Le- I mean, if it's the right version of iPad, if it's the right generation, just set it up, de- deactivate all the color options on the display, put it de- to this level of brightness. Yeah. And that's representative of how it's going to look. It's not a no. great one monitor. It's no. not a great one Sony no. monitor, but it will give you a ballpark. I mean, don't give me notes of give me a quarter point of red because you don't want to see it but uh but you can see if you like it overall if there's any shot that bumps you if there's anything that you see i mean there's a lot of things that you can tell yeah, by that. i think it's a great a great solution and it's nearest we've got to any sort of standard across the board at the moment which i think is really good now i yeah. want to put now talking of retro t-shirts uh you can see my frame io 10 year might be 10, I got for memory. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. our colorist mixer coming up, which is 12th of the 12th, starting 12 noon. Uh, you've agreed to come on and do a bit of a keynote talking about Lightbender and what you're doing from a boutique uh, point of view. Mm-hmm. Let's have a look at your T-shirt. One, let's see whether you might be in line to win something. Look at that. I'm a colorist. I probably don't know too many much. <laughs> so <laughs> we're... We're going to be encouraging people to come along with their retro T-shirts on and there'll be prizes, which might be colorist mixer T-shirts or other things during the event. It's 24 hours, so I'm sure if you go to uh, WW Colorist Mixer, get a ticket, you'll be able to join at some stage during that time. Um <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I will. I will wear the t-shirt on that night. Definitely, mate. You, I might, I might even get it to change halfway or something. You know, we can mix it up with a different. I want people making cocktails and uh, trying to win prizes or our sponsors at different ways. It's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun day. I've sort of said I'm going to stay up all night, which uh, probably it will cut to me. I'll be asleep. I'm sure at some stage. Do people get extra points if they change the t-shirt live? Well, like, it could like, well be. Yeah. Flashing, flashing yeah. everybody. I can't be, I can't, you know, encourage that sort of thing, obviously, but like, like, like showing hairy, hairy armpits. Depends. And, and probably, all I say one, it probably depends is changing the t-shirt. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, that's right, mate. I want to thank you for coming on the color tour. Uh, it's been really great. I admire what you're doing, setting up your own company, doing your thing. And again, Thank it just you. comes down to, you know, us being the person. But we've got to put those nuts and bolts all around us, haven't I, to put the whole package together. So I, I want to thank you. Where can people Where can people find you? Uh, well, they can find it on the website. Um, the company is lightbenderpost.com. Uh, on Instagram is at lightbender underscore post. I think I don't know my own Instagram. I, I, I use it. I should use it more. We'll stick it all in the uh, notes anyway. But but everything is on the on the website. Right? Like from the website, you can access. Uh, you can yeah, lightbender underscore post. Okay, it's our our uh, Instagram. And uh, yeah, drop me a line. Drop me an email. I'm always happy to chat with anybody. If you're struggling with some technical issue or, or workflow or something and want to have a quick chat and, and and stuff like i'm i'm always happy to help sure man it's been really fun and uh, good luck with the awards hey uh, Thank you. we're we're rooting Fingers for crossed. you
We're rooting for Fingers you. Crossed. Thanks a lot, Paddy. Speak soon. That, that, David versus Goliath. Yeah. Let's see if we win. Yeah. <laughs> see you. Thanks. Have a good night. Bye. You can catch up on all the previous actual live Colour Tour recordings from the previous seasons on our website, bycolorist.com. And you can also go there for any sort of training or any general colour information that you need. Enjoy. We'll see you on the next one.